Thanks also to Lily for reading. It's always nice when we have our fiddle player back home for a short visit. If you're visiting with us this morning, whether online or in person, uh, please come back next week. I am not the normal speaker. Pastor Matt normally is up here. Uh, it, is, uh, it fits completely with his gifting and his calling and is exceptionally good at it. So please come back and hear Pastor Matt next week. Before we begin, uh, I know we've prayed several times already. Uh, I need one more. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word. We know that you've given it to us and preserved it all these centuries for us. Now we ask you that you'd send your spirit to help us to rightly divide the word of truth so that the things I say and the things that people hear will be just what they need today, just what I need today, so that when we leave here today, we go knowing you a little more, being a little closer to what you want us to be, having been molded just a little bit by your spirit more to the image of Christ. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if I can get through this microphone, I'll be good. I thought about how this was going to be really bad if it was during the pandemic. I usually wear hearing aids, so you can imagine a fellow with hearing aids and glasses and a mask and this microphone. I could be strangled up here. Nobody would know it. <laughs> Luckily, with no hearing aids, no mask, just the glasses and the microphone, maybe I can make it through. My usual job is as a teacher. I teach physics down the road at ISU, just about a mile from here. I've done that now for almost 30 years. This is my 30th year at ISU coming up this fall. I can honestly say I love to teach. I really do enjoy it. And I know there are lots of other teachers here in the audience who would say the same thing. They love what they do. I would also guess that every one of those teachers would agree with me when I said probably the sweetest moment in any teacher's life is when you're presenting some difficult topic to a student and after they struggle a bit, suddenly you see in their eyes, you see that eureka moment, that little aha when they get it. That's what every teacher lives for. And of course, in physics, we live it a lot less than others because there are some really wacky topics in physics. I mean, tell a student for the first time that an electron sometimes acts like a wave and sometimes acts like a particle, and their faces will will look just like your faces right now. <laughs> it takes a while for those things to sink in, and it takes a lot of patience. You don't do this quickly. I can't tell you how many times as a teacher I've brought out what I thought was the perfect example problem that exactly explained this principle, and I still get that knitted brow look. So, like a good teacher, you reach in your bag and you pull out the next perfect example of that principle, maybe looking at it from a slightly different perspective, and they still don't get it. Now you see where the patience comes in, right? You may have to do this several times to make that work. Sometimes, of course, the student is not prepared to learn. They haven't learned everything they need to know to get that principle yet. And then sometimes they don't even come with the desire to learn. So you can see that teaching sometimes takes great patience. No one doubts that Jesus was a great teacher. 
Even people who don't believe in his deity would still say that Jesus was a great teacher, even if they don't even believe in the principles he's teaching. Now, the Bible records this in many places. We saw one of them in the Gospel of Mark just a few chapters before. That was back in Mark chapter 6. Mark records this. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? I think we'll see today that there's even a deeper part of that. There's a facet of Jesus' teaching that's going to be very sweet to us by the time we leave here today. Now, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus take Peter and James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus' real glory was revealed and confirmed by the Father's voice. So if you look at verse 9 and 10 of this chapter, Mark says, And as they were coming down the mountain, this is after the Transfiguration, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, Jesus was already drawing huge crowds. And he didn't want this to become widely known until after his resurrection, because that would just make the crowds worse. Note that the disciples still hadn't figured out what this whole rising from the dead thing meant. They were still puzzled by that. They hadn't learned it yet. Now, they knew that he had power over death. Just back up another chapter or two, back in Mark chapter 5, we saw that Jesus raised uh, Jairus' daughter, right? We know that he has power over death, but evidently they were concerned that he wouldn't have that power if he were the one who was dead. How could he raise himself? Then last week, we saw that as Jesus and the three disciples came down the mountain, Uh, Jesus healed a boy with an unclean spirit. You may recall that this was the spirit that the other disciples couldn't cast out. Hang on to that. And Mark then records for us the passage for today. We see three little vignettes, little scenes, where Jesus is going through some teaching with the disciples. The first one starts where Lily started this morning in in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee... And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Okay, now you see why Jesus didn't want a big crowd. He's teaching his disciples a hard thing. He needs some space and some peace and quiet to do this. So, here we go. The grammar that Jesus uses in this first passage here indicates that he's teaching his disciples not as a one-time thing, but as a thing that's spread out over time. This is not Jesus saying, okay, here's your one lecture on this topic. There'll be a quiz this afternoon. No, this is Jesus teaching in the long run. And you kind of see where that comes from, because you all know how God commanded his word be taught back in Deuteronomy. What does it say in Deuteronomy 6? You shall teach these things diligently to your children. 
And how does he say you're supposed to teach them? Well, let's see. In my notes, it says, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He and his disciples traipsing all over Galilee. He's teaching them constantly because this is a hard thing. But notice verse 32 tells us they didn't get it. They did not understand the saying. And then moreover, they were afraid to ask. Now, this is a sad thing for a teacher, that they're afraid to ask. They're afraid their question might seem dumb. No, there are no dumb questions. But there's another reason that the disciples were a little bit afraid. Go back to chapter 8. This is, remember, this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about this particular topic with his disciples. This is actually the second of three incidents when Jesus teaches this particular truth to the disciples. Now, the first one is back in Mark 8. Verse 31 says, And he began to teach them, what was he teaching them? That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. The disciples were afraid because they remembered what happened to Peter. Peter was rebuked by Jesus. Now, the New Testament writers use a whole bunch of words to describe the verbal exchange between two people, especially in the sort of teaching mode. There's, you know, encourage, exhort, admonish, reprove, correct, and rebuke. So if you start over on the softer side of that list, there's my favorite Greek word, parakaleo, right? Para from parallel lines alongside, and kaleo, the the Greek word to call. So the, the, the idea of parakaleo is you put your arm around someone beside you and you call them alongside you, you walk along with them and encourage them. That's the way that word is usually translated. But over on the other side of that list, on the sharper side, is the word that often gets translated as rebuke. Sometimes it's translated worn or sternly worn. And you can kind of see what idea that carries with it. If you read all the instances where rebuke is used in the New Testament, you'll find out that Jesus rebuked the storm and the wind. He rebuked the unclean spirit. He also rebuked Peter. He carries with it the idea of stopping something that is either unwanted or not good for you. So basically, think of rebuke as a way to stop something bad. I can recall rebuking someone. It happened right down here on School Street. I park in the big lot right across from the Methodist Church, and then I walk down School Street, cross over College Avenue to get to campus. So I'm standing there, dutifully waiting for the light to change so I can cross College Avenue, and a young lady, with her phone, of course, comes walking down the sidewalk headed to the street, and she's not looking up, and she's not stopping. She gets within like one or two steps from the street and hasn't looked up and hasn't stopped So I rebuked her. I said, stop at the top of my lungs. Now, I think I scared her out of about a year's growth. (laughs) 
But the point is, she stopped. Something bad was about to happen, and I was able to stop it with a rebuke. And that's kind of the way we should read this word. Now you know why they were afraid to ask. They didn't want to get what Peter got. So now I think we see the, if you want a three-point sermon, this was great for three-point sermons, right? There are three little vignettes in this passage, so one, two, three, I got it. So I think the point of the first vignette is that Jesus teaches hard things patiently. Aren't you glad? This is a praise God moment. Jesus patiently teaches hard things. Think how hard this was for the disciples. They're thinking, like everybody else in their generation, that Jesus is going to come as a conquering king, throw out those hated Romans. See, in modern edu-speak, we'd say they have misconceptions. The disciples loved Jesus, and they wanted to keep him from harm. See, they had other ideas, arguably good ideas, that were wrong. They knew Jesus could bring back the dead, but they didn't know how he could bring himself back from the dead. You see, they doubted his power. Do you hear us in that? We have misconceptions. We have other good ideas, maybe good ideas, but they're wrong ideas. And we sometimes doubt the power that is in Jesus. We're no different from the disciples. Think about all the hard spiritual lessons that we have to learn. Just go down the list in the New Testament. Mortify the flesh, right? Put to death sin in your mortal bodies. That's kind of tough. How do you set your affections on things above? How do you esteem others greater than yourself? How do you submit to God-ordained authority? Folks, we have hard lessons to learn. Aren't you glad that the one who's teaching us those hard lessons is patient? Now let's look at the second vignette. Verse 33 says this, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, Capernaum was sort of like Jesus' home base. He came back here often. The house that is referred to in this verse might very well have been Peter's house because Peter lived in Capernaum. The language that Jesus uses in the question here is exactly like the language used in the teaching earlier. What were you discussing along the way? Well, this is not the first time they've done this. They've been discussing this a lot. This was a common topic for the disciples to discuss along the way. And also that word discussing is a little bit too soft. This was a pretty animated, vigorous discussion. You know, these were the disciples getting in each other's face about these things sometimes. You can imagine that this discussion had gotten a little more vigorous because this is right after the transfiguration, right? So we, we know that Peter, James, and John are one, two, and three. So now we get to argue about who's four, five, and six, right? These are humans, after all. Who's going to be the greatest? <laughs> Note also that this comes right after 
They had just learned for the second time about Christ's humble sacrifice, the God of the universe being delivered over to men and killed, and they get to worry about who's greatest among them. Okay, here's a master teacher. Here it comes. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Here comes the master teacher. He sits down, a very humble place for a teacher, but a common one in those days, kind of traditional, calls the disciples around him, and he teaches. He berates them for their arrogance and their pride. Wait, no, that's not what he did. That's what I would have done. That's not what Jesus did. He uses language that says that desire you have to be great in the kingdom, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. That if there really means more like sense. Okay, I know you have this desire. Let me show you how to do it. But he completely upends their notion of greatness, right? Least of all, servant of all. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> No, no, that, that, that's not greatness. I don't want to be on the bottom of the pile. I would like to be on the top of the pile, please. That's where greatness is. And then you hear those words that are attributed to Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. I will ascend to heaven. I will make my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. Ooh. Maybe the top of the pile is not necessarily where greatness is supposed to be. So now Jesus brings in an object lesson. Look at verse 36. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him, the child, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Whenever I imagine this scene, I see Jesus, uh, and probably Trevor can tell us this, right? Because you were just there, right? I see him sitting on a hillside overlooking the sea. He sits down. He brings the disciples around him, and they're having this discussion. And he sees a child, so he waves the child over. He asks the child to come and sit with him. Then he takes the child, and he puts the child in his lap, and he wraps his arms around the child. That's what the language says. His arms are around the child. And then he gives this lesson. Okay. I, we can learn lots of things from this child. I'd bet a nickel that if Jesus asked that child to go and fetch something for him, that child would have done it. No questions asked, running all the way, just for the reward of Jesus' smile when he got back. So maybe that's what he's trying to teach them. Well, there are lots of other things about children that he could be teaching them, right? Children are, I don't know, trusting, unpretentious, guileless, submissive, dependent. Maybe that's what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, because those are all things that children are. But I think he's aiming at something even different. He's saying that if a follower wants to be great in the kingdom, he can't just become like one of these little ones. Remember, that's kind of already a requirement, right? If you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus has already said you've got to be like one of these children. Your faith has to be, your trust has to be like one of these little children. 
So that's not quite it. What is it he's trying to do? No, Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to receive and serve these little ones in the faith. They're at the bottom of the pile. And that's where greatness is. Go down to the bottom of the pile and serve the little ones in the faith if you want to be great. And it's not just being nice or hospitable. I mean, anybody can do that. A polite person can do that. It has to be, that little one has to be received in Jesus' name. Now, we bandy that about a lot. In Jesus' name. That's how we pray. We end our prayer. In Jesus' name. What does that mean? There's nothing magical necessarily about Jesus' name. You could go around saying Abraka Jesus the rest of your life and nothing would happen. That's not the point. The point is you have to do the receiving and the serving as if Jesus himself were the one being received and served. And if the servant is always less than the master, when the master comes to you in the form of a little child with tiny faith, where is the servant to be? Underneath that, because the servant is always underneath the master. Now, okay, you could, in false modesty, take a low position, but that doesn't work because Christ always sees the heart and he knows why you have taken that low position. Even if the master shows himself through the faith of a little child, that is how I must serve him. Hmm. This is the basis, the true basis on which the child must be received, according to Jesus' words. Not that he's a child, but because he belongs to Jesus. If he belongs to Jesus, it doesn't matter how the world sees him, or how great or small his faith is. Then, of course, we have the final link in the servant's claim to greatness. That's in verse 37. Receiving and serving one of these little ones in the faith is the same as receiving and serving the Son. And then receiving and serving the Son is the same as receiving and serving the Father who sent the Son. So the Father's favor, which you could argue is the definition of greatness in the kingdom, the Father's favor goes to the one, not the one who lords it over everyone with some big authority and a big stick. The Father's favor goes to the one who goes to the bottom of the pile and lifts up all those little ones in the faith, pointing them the way to growth in Jesus. Hmm. Greatness in the kingdom means I must decrease and he must increase. You've probably heard that before. I have to give up power and authority and the way I look in the eyes of men for the privilege of serving the least of these. One day, at the judgment seat of Christ, I think we're all going to be a little surprised at who's at the head of the line. I think you're going to see a lot of children's church workers, a lot of vacation Bible school workers, a lot of grandparents who poured their lives into the souls of their grandchildren. 
at the head of the line. So, what have we learned from this second vignette? I think we learned that Jesus patiently teaches even when we get it wrong. See, the disciples desired greatness in the kingdom. And Jesus said that was a good thing. We should all desire greatness in the kingdom. But they were going about it the wrong way. They had a wrong view of what greatness was. We're no different. We put temporal things, regular attendance, regular tithing, following rules, staying out of trouble. We put all that at the top of our to-do list. Those are good things. But we often have a wrong view of how those things are viewed in the kingdom and what real worth they have. Suppose I go to an elder meeting and I push for a decision based purely on what I think will be the effect that that decision has on the weekly offering or the weekly attendance. Or suppose every decision that the elders make is based on how, it, how we can make the grounds and the buildings look better or uh, keep some popular program going that really doesn't have much eternal significance. None of those things are bad. But our view of their place in the kingdom, of God's value on those things, might be wrong. As elders, our job is to teach diligently, to pray earnestly, to guard fiercely, and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, however strong or weak that faith is, and make sure that every one of them is helped up the ladder of God's growth. That's our job. Aren't you glad? I know I am. That our master teacher is there to patiently teach us when we get it wrong. If we make the wrong decision, he's there to help us get it right. Our job is to be alert for the lessons and learn them when they come. Okay, now for the third vignette. You'll forgive me, I forgot to look at the clock, so I have no idea where I am in terms of time. So I guess when my wife starts doing this, I'll know to quit. Or when Mark turns my microphone off, whichever comes first. <laughs> Verse 38 says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Okay, let's set the stage here a little bit. Remember, the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus about the whole rising from the dead thing because, and they were also ashamed of what they had just been discussing about who was greatest in the kingdom. And last week, remember, they couldn't cast out a demon from a young child, from a young man. So here they come with this. We don't know why John brought this up. Mark doesn't tell us. So let's just look at the question and the answer. You can see three things in the question. First, the unnamed man here was actually successful at casting out demons. Here was a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name with the right power, the right authority, the right reason. Second, the disciples tried to stop him, but couldn't. He wouldn't let them stop him. Think about that. Third, their rationale for trying to stop him was that this man was not following us seems to indicate in their thinking that, hey, if you don't follow us, then there's no way you can have authority from Jesus to cast out demons. Okay? I think Jesus saw something a little different. Look at the next verse. Verse 39 says, But Jesus said, 
Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, when I teach logic to the kids down the street, I tell them that one of their most powerful tools is to look for contradictions. If someone comes to you and says, all dogs are brown, what do you do? You just look around the neighborhood until you find a dog that isn't brown, and you show it to him. Here's an obvious fact that's contradiction to your assertion, so your assertion must be wrong. So my human side, when I read this, I want to raise my hand, maybe not a whole hand, maybe just a finger, and very hesitantly say, uh, excuse me, Lord, uh, are you sure? Pharaoh's magicians did some miracles, but they weren't exactly on our side. And are you sure that we can't find anybody who's not really against us, but who's also not really for us? But as usual, I got it wrong. And I have to dig a little deeper to find out what Jesus is after here. Note that Jesus refers to someone who did a mighty work in his name, by his power, by his authority. Pharaoh's magician didn't have that. Okay, then let's give the devil his due. Satan rules the demon world, and it's possible, I suppose, that Satan could give up some of his authority to some human, some unbeliever, let them cast out a demon if it would cause harm or confusion to a believer. I'm sure he could do that. Some of those folks in Matthew 7, the ones who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Maybe that's where they did it. Maybe that's how they did it. Maybe they were just telling a fib. I don't know. But I do know that that's not where this man's power came from. I think that Jesus is here saying that someone who works a mighty work in Jesus' name has a spark of that true faith that we would call saving faith. And that that person will not soon become his enemy or ours, whether he's in our little group or not. I think Jesus is here just affirming what we know about saving faith. There is no middle ground. You can't be half saved. You're, it's either in or out, yes or no. It's a binary sort of choice. And we are not allowed to tack on extra requirements because he was not following us. I'm sorry, that doesn't count. Where is his faith? What is his power? Where is his power coming from? That's what counts, not whether he's following you or anyone else. But I think Jesus is also saying something about his character. And I think it might be related to a, a passage that has always puzzled me. It's in Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, this section is about the Messiah. It's one of those prophetic chapters about the Messiah. So Isaiah is telling some of the things that the Messiah is going to do or not do. And in this verse, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, if you're not a country person, <laughs> that might seem completely odd to you. And even if you are a country person, it might not make much theological sense. But I think Jesus is talking about this. What if a bruised reed refers to someone whose faith 
has been bruised? What if a faintly burning wick refers to someone whose faith is so tiny, it's just a little spark? It's there. It's real. It's in the right place. It's just not very big yet. We don't know the details. We don't know about this man casting out demons other than the fact that he could do it, and he was doing it in Jesus' name. So he must have had at least a spark of that faith. A bruised reed is a delicate thing. It's easy to knock it off. A faintly burning wick is really, really hard to get going again. You have to protect it from the wind and gently blow it with the right set of fuel to get it going. And I think that's what Isaiah says the Messiah is here to do. He's not going to let that little spark of faith go out. And I think that brings us maybe to the point of our third vignette. Jesus patiently nourishes even the tiniest spark of genuine faith. If it's there, it won't die. Now, I think Jesus also gives us another clue in the last verse of our passage this morning. In verse 41, he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, okay, giving a cup of water, even a cup of cold water, as some of the other gospel writers tell it, that's a pretty small thing, kind of a menial. Even in the desert, when cold water is hard to come by, that still doesn't take a lot of effort. But do you see the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick? This small gesture, according to Jesus, must be offered because you belong to Christ. And that can't be done by someone who is indifferent to Jesus. Now, okay, a nice person might give you a cup of water just to be polite. But that's not the reason that counts as far as Jesus is concerned. If that tiny spark of faith isn't there, it doesn't count. And if that spark is there, Jesus will patiently fan it into flame so that the manifestation of that faith won't stop with just one cup. That should be thrilling, certainly comforting and encouraging to all of us. The notion of teaching in the Bible comes in lots of forms. There's teaching in the usual sense, a teacher standing before a bunch of students to talk. There's training in the athletic sense. There's discipline, which is kind of a combination of training and correction. And all those things are taught in the Bible as ways of teaching. The ultimate end, of course, is improvement, moving you up the ladder of faith. I think the good news for us is wrapped up in the master teacher in charge. We've seen this morning that he will teach us hard spiritual lessons with great patience. He'll use that same patience even when we get it wrong, using the gentlest correction necessary. Remember, that's how the father corrects the son in whom he delights. And even when our faith is weak and beaten down, he won't let that flame go out. He will patiently protect it and nourish it so we can reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ.
And in a few minutes, we'll be commissioned and sent out into the world to live out our faith. My prayer is that we will now trust our patient teacher so much that every lesson he assigns will be gladly received and that we'll trust that we can be in no greater hands than this patient teacher. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard from your word. We now know more of your character. We know how patient you are with us. Help us then to trust the patient teacher who will now nourish us, protect us, who will use the gentlest method possible to correct us, who has nothing in mind but our improvement so that we can ascend the ladder of faith, become more and more like the image of Christ. Help us to believe that and to trust that. Then help us to seek the greatness that Jesus described at the bottom of the pile. Help us to go where the little ones are, the little ones in the faith, the ones who just maybe have that spark or whose faith has been bruised, and let us help them take one more step up the ladder. From the bottom, we can help push. Help us to do that so that we might guide souls to the kingdom and that we might bring glory to your name, for that's what you made us for. Help us to do it in Christ's name.